American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time to When the words Welcome, Welcome to, to another, another episode, episode of American, American Timelines. Time I'm Amy. And I am Vern Hoot. Vern Hoot. Vern Hoot. Former Northwood High School alumni, Vern Hoot. That's a real person. That's a Vern Hoot. He's a real guy. That's a, quite a name. His name is Vernon Hoot. He was the best. He wore a sweater. I wonder what Hoot is. I wonder what kind of nationality, nationality Hoot. Hoot would be. I think it's... Uh, an owl. Redneck. Uh, de- uh, descendants of owls. Appalachian. Appalachian, maybe. Vern Hoot was the greatest. He you, had, The uh, greatest? Uh, here's what I remember of Vern Hoot. He had hair. Uh, all right. And he had a sweater. That's okay. all I remember. So Vern this is the podcast go. that brings you all of the crazy, nostalgic, interesting things that happened in years gone by, and we do it year by year. And we're married, and my name is Vern Hoot. No, that's Joe. Um <sighs> And tonight, we are talking about 1979. 1979. We're going to finally finish 1979. This is our 19th episode on 79. No, it's not. (laughs) It seems like it. It does seem like it. 79 was quite a year. Yeah, there's just a lot of stuff, and we keep finding more info. So we're probably, next season, I'll probably go back to not very many episodes, because we probably won't be able to find as much about the 60s. The 60s. Or maybe we'll find more. Who knows? That's right. It's so, always developing. We're always developing something new. So we left off in the middle of my story. Oh, yeah. What was, where did we and, leave off? What were uh, we talking if about? You, I can't remember. If you didn't listen to the last episode, you might want to go back and take a listen. You should. Just just go back to episode 56. Or maybe just yourself. go back to episode one, and then we'll see you back here when you're done with Yeah, even if you've already listened to all of them, just of them, start back over just to you know kind of get a feel for us. Yeah, that's um, important. And then if you could, just tally up how many times we talk about pubes and just let me know, because I'm really trying to see if this is actually a pubes podcast or not. Right, right. So, so when we left off, yeah. dating game killer Rodney oh, Alcala. Right. Yeah, the dating game killer. This guy was on the dating game, and you can look it up on YouTube. You can yes. watch the video of him, and you can. it's creepy. He's creepy. Um, his name is Rodney Alcala. And he had just been released on parole from a kidnapping charge. Okay. And moved to Los Angeles to work as a typesetter with the LA Times. That's right, because people were very lenient on uh, white people. uh, That's right. White people could get out of jail for whatever. And he was also an amateur photographer, which... I think we've heard before with these killers. Yeah, they, I, you know what? Photographers, Jeffrey Dahmer. Yep. And also the guy I can't remember his name. The the cover girl killer, the oh. one who would go to those fashion shows. Remember that? Yeah, saw that, that picture guy was of a killer. Yeah. So actually, uh, I would challenge any listener right now to name uh, an amateur photographer who is not a, a serial murderer. killer. Yeah. There are none. So next time you meet an amateur photographer, slap them and run away. That's right. No matter so who they are, where at you night, are. he lured in young girls to be part of his photography portfolio, yep. some of them never to be heard from again. And he probably preyed on them, do you want to be a model? Yeah, that's Which right. Which is what they always do. Hey, that's you right. want to be a model? I'm a photographer. So the year- And everyone wants to be a model, every woman well, and man. I wouldn't say that. I, I don't think that's inaccurate. You don't think statement. every young girl and every young man no. wants to be a model? I don't know. Every young person wants to be aspire to be a model. So, the year after the dating game appearance, yep, seventeen year old Leanne Leadham was okay. lucky enough to walk away unscathed from a photo shoot with Rodney Alcala. Oh, how did that happen? How'd she get out alive unscathed? And she remarked how he showed her his portfolio, which, in addition to shots of women, included spread after spread of naked teenage boys. What? That's yeah. weird. So. Now, when does the flag go off? Like after the first or yeah. 17th picture of a naked dude? That's right. Unless photographers taking pictures. So since then, police have released parts of Alcala's portfolio to the public to aid in victim identification. And wow. you can still view some of these photos. So they 
they're on to him. Yes. But they just don't well, know that's since then. Since oh, since, since then. he's been ar- since he was arrested, they they oh to just did to try that. to just try because to name they, the victims. Yeah, because there's so many. Oh my gosh. Over the years, a few have stepped forward to reveal their horrifying moment with this predator. Oh boy. The case that would finally break Rodney Alcala's killing spree was that of 12-year-old Robin Samso. She okay. disappeared from Huntington Beach, California, on her way to ballet class on June twentieth, nineteen seventy-nine. You mean she? She? That was the same day, June twentieth, nineteen seventy-nine. The same day that Bookman's assistant TC is interested in going out with JJ. Uh, Are you giving he, me a good times plot? Yeah, right he now? doesn't think much of TC because he sees her only as one of the guys. With a dance event coming up, this seems like a good time for them to get together. And T.C. was played by Ronalda Douglas. I don't remember a character named T.C. T.C. was Good Bookman. Times. Remember Bookman? Yeah. The fat Bookman? Yeah. That was... Book, I thought his name... And they, he called him Booger. I think they called... No, they called him... I uh, think J.J. called him Booger. Booger? Yeah, I think so. I thought they called him something Or else. Boogerman Book, or something. Bookman was great. He's a big fat guy. Yeah. But that's also the same day that um, Bill Stewart, an ABC television news correspondent, and his interpreter, Juan Espinosa, were executed by a Nicaraguan National Guard soldier oh, while wow. attempting to film a... Award, oh, a by attempting to film war deconstruction in Ni- Nicaragua, the murders are caught on tape. Oh, footage is later shown on news broadcasts. Whoa! Did you ever hear about that? No. Yeah, we. You should totally do a story about that. Yeah, I didn't ever Instead hear about of that. This one. But then, no, the one? dating game killer is pretty good. You hate this one. Okay, no, but Bookman. There's so, just any excuse to talk about Bookman is good. That's true. So. Robin Samson's friends said that a stranger approached them on the beach and asked if they'd want to do a photo shoot. And the stranger probably didn't even mention that Good Times was on. No, they probably didn't. They they declined, and Samso left, borrowing a friend's bike to hurriedly get to ballet. At some point between the beach and class, Samso disappeared. Nearly 12 days later, a park ranger found her animal-ravaged bones in a forested area near the Pasadena foothills of the Sierra Madre. I think the park ranger did it. You think? Yeah, you don't you th- think it was Rodney Alcala? Well, it was either the dating game killer or that park ranger. Park ranger. So the police too. questioned Samso's friends, and a police sketch artist drew up a composite, and Alcala's former parole officer recognized it. Wow. So he was like, dude, that's my dating game guy killer. That's right. Was he on the dating game yet at this point? Yes. Oh, it was, here it was, was a year, year after. Okay. So the composite developed between the sketch artist and Robin's friend of the man last seen with Robin was shown on the 5 p.m. news broadcast. And it showed a young man with dark curly hair. Then Alcala chemically straightened his naturally curly hair after he saw that he was on the news. Chemically? Yep. July 26, 1979. Oh, the same day that Gloria Gaynor and Arnold Schwarzenegger were on Merv Griffin and James Boland was on Good Morning America. And the big story is on that same day, according to Out.com's Today in Gay History, the term bear was first coined. Oh, sweet. Yes. So what is a bear for those that don't know? Oh, uh, uh, I'm glad you asked because a bear, oh, hold on. You can probably guess. Well, you can probably guess, but I have the actual, um, so they, bear wasn't the only term they came up with. They came with like a whole zoo of gay guys. Like they what, did. what they were. Yeah, there was Flamingos. Like a, yeah, there was a bunch yeah. of them. There was a bunch of them. Um, uh, there was, let's see, let's see if I have any of them written down. Um. It was, it was like a zoo of gay, glossary of gay animals. Uh, the Advocate published, mm-hmm. uh, the Advocate magazine published a glossary of would gay, they call, gay would they animals. Would they be called animals? Ganimals? Gay animals? I yeah. guess they would be. Yeah. Because uh, you call gay Asians. Uh, gay Asians. Asians. You do. Um, no, I don't. That was from, who was it, Kathy Griffin or somebody? Anyway, the bear, bears are the only ones I think that stuck. I mean- Correct us if we're wrong, gay community. Um, if you're listening to this, our gay fans, like, tweet us at History for Jerks and let us know if gay guys still refer to other gay guys as other animals other than bear. But all I've only ever heard bear. Me too, but we're not cool like that. We're not, we're not, in, not, in, the gay, in, we're not in the gay in, in crowd. As hard as we try. I know what. You know. Yes. I've touched so many wieners trying to get in that community. Uh, <laughs> bears are usually hunky, chunky types, reminiscent of railroad engineers and former football greats. Sweet. They have larger chests and bellies than average, and notably muscular legs. Some Italian-American bears, however, are leaner and smaller. It's attitude that makes a bear. Oh, really? Yeah, general characteristics are hair. Yes. <laughs> I thought it was just hair. So I your brother is yeah, a bear. My, well, <laughs> 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 I don't know if he's got the muscular legs, but no. I, I always tell... Uh, 
uh, all the gay guys we work with that he's a bear, and they're like, oh, I guess he's. I he, guess he covered his hairy back. Like I one time, yeah, I told you about the time I saw him come out of the shower, and I thought it really was a bear. And one <laughs> no, no, because it was like a fur bear. Like it was like a fur covered in fur. Yeah, be- like the wolf like a, man. A rug on the front, and rug on the like back. Teen wolf. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> anyway, uh, hair. Poor brother. Their tangled beards often present no discernible place to insert a comb. <laughs> I'm glad you said comb because I thought you were going to say insert something else. No, no. No, they're beards. You can't insert anything in, in the beard. Laughter, uh, okay. Bears laugh a lot. That's the other thing. Uh, oh, they do. And they're generally good-natured. Andy is a bear. Yeah. They make wonderful companions since they're not prone to reach for the check, buy the, next, buy the next round, and, and keep abreast of when the trocadero is dancing this season, whatever that means. Yeah. Their good humor can turn threatening if you attempt to cruise their trick, and you will hear about it for weeks afterwards. Cruise their trick? What is that? Maybe, like, take their boyfriend? cruise their trick i guess that's what they mean yeah. what they eat beer is their favorite food when they stay out past their hibernation time on weeknights their lower bear nature takes over and they drink more scotch and water than is good for them then they will often perform hilariously trying to dance in time to the disco beat providing amusement for all around Boy, this is your brother yes yeah, so, <laughs> so it goes on and on about different things about uh you know their natural habitat as bears are fascinated by motorcycle runs um uh, they're titillated by the motorcycle mystique. Anyway, there's yeah, they're wonderful around the so house. So, do you have to have yeah. all of these characteristics in order to be a bear? I don't know. What I, if you're I, just you're not good around the house, but you have everything else? Well, Are maybe you you're, not a bear? maybe you're part bear, part flamingo, and other things. I can't. Remember, I don't, I didn't write down what the other oh, animals darn were. It. Darn. Uh, but if you look it up, if you just Google the uh, the advocates glossary of gay animals i could probably do that pretty quickly here you, you can probably get them edit it out yeah, i can edit the pause while i'm looking it up um the advocate okay there's an owl <laughs> i think there is. is that a flamingo let's see the bear the signet swan Gazelles. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Marmosets. So the swan. What's the main characteristics of a swan? Uh, they are the least interesting of the lot. They're always <laughs> elegant, often beautiful, and devote their lives to cultivating perfect bodies and cheap swank. <laughs> okay. They are snobs about everything, from having the cutest tricks to wearing the best clothes. That's funny. I think I've met a couple of those. Yeah. All right. What? There, there's little discernible difference in the attitudes of the males and females, except the lesbians tend to be a little nicer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's gazelles. Yeah, they are a warm, heart of gold types who temper their personalities with a business-like approach to love, life, and the pursuit of happiness. They're probably the best adjusted of the gay animals. The gazelles' parents know he's gay and join him at the disco or wherever the gazelle exhibits his madcap personality that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> madcap personality. I love that. Yeah, yeah. The, the gazelle's mother often adopts her offspring's speech patterns and mannerisms. She will also smoke pot, bitch, and dish with all the gazelle's friends in the living room and get very risque about their sex lives. That'd be me. Marmosets look like small manicured bears. Yeah, yeah, it would be you. You, you wish, you hope our son ends up being gay. No, no. I think you do. I only, no, only because. Just because you love gay people. It would be hard for, for him. That's the only reason, which is a shame. Right. Marmosets look like small manicured bears, but unfortunately it incorporate many of the nastier aspects of pussycats into their personalities they are however wonderful to look at being among the hottest of the gay animals male or female uh see I, did i miss the pussycats when there's owls where owls the owl is the older gentleman who is <laughs> oh, an old gay, i love old gay guys older gay animals uh Though sarcastic at times, they love everyone and everyone loves them. Oh, I love the survivors of the fabulous 50s when gays were being hounded to death. Don McAllister. Yet they never stopped laughing or camping it up. Yeah, I love old gay guys. There's nothing better than old gay guys. I know it. There's peaks and Afghans, the pussycats. What's a pussycat? Pussycats are deceptive since they have the bear look down pat, but where bears are somewhat shy, pussycats have a dry wit. Also, bears are naturally rumpled while pussycats keep their freshly pressed chambray work shirts nearly tucked neatly at, tucked oh yeah neatly tucked it's it's a print of an old magazine so it's harder to see 
Some of these are neatly tucked, and their T-shirts are always snowy white. Pussycats will drink beer, but are careful not to let the can leave wet rings on their... Coffee table. On their Levis? Oh. What's a Levis? What's it? How's it spelled? L-E-V-I-S? No. Levi's, duh. Oh, Levi's. I'm an idiot. <laughs> Stupid. Because it's capitalized, too. Yeah. Pussycats know all about wines and everything else. You cannot surprise a pussycat. Anyway, those are those that's are fascinating. The yeah, so that I love that. I knew you would love that. I and do. I've been waiting to get to that, but that was the, so the same day that the bear was coined. coined was the same day as Sergeant McGurlane and Detective Robinson obtained a warrant for the storage locker rented by Alcala in Seattle, Washington, oh. and flew there to search the unit. Oh boy, they're on to him. After a three-hour search, the officers collected several pieces of evidence, including over 1,700 photos and negatives in boxes, one of which was labeled Ode to New York by John Berger. Remember, his that was one of his aliases? John Berger was? Yeah. I don't remember. When when he um, went, I, I need when to he go was back like, and listen. When he was like at a camp, the camp counselor and stuff, his name was John Berger. Oh, yeah, now I can't remember that. So they knew they had their man at this point. They had their man, and he was a beautiful dating game alum. But beginning with the trial in 1980, Samso's family would have to follow a rather long and winding road to justice. The jury found Alcala guilty of first-degree murder, and he received the death penalty. However, the California Supreme Court overturned this verdict due to the jury being prejudiced, they felt, by learning of Alcala's past sex crimes. What? I know. How is that prejudice? I know. That always drives me nuts when they say... You can only focus on the current case. You can't let the jury know about this horrific history this person has. That's nuts. That's crazy. What a crazy judicial system we have. It is. It took six years to put him back on trial. At the second trial in 1986, another jury sentenced him to death. This one didn't stick either. A Ninth (sighs) Circuit Court of Appeals panel overturned it in 2001. L.A. Weekly wrote, in part, because the second trial judge did not allow a witness to back up the defense's claim that the park ranger who found Robin Sampson's animal-ravaged body in the mountains had been hypnotized by police investigators. Well, police investigators are known to hypnotize park Especially rangers. Especially in 1979. Stop. Stop putting the microphone into the dogs. Sorry. Finally, in 2010, 31 years after the murder. What? A third trial was held. Just before the dating game killer still yeah. in 2010 is going on trial. Yeah, what the hell? Just before the trial, Orange County Senior Deputy District Attorney Matt Murphy told LA Weekly, "The 70s in California was insane as far as treatment of sexual predators." Rodney Alcala is a poster boy for this. It's yeah. a total comedy of outrageous stupidity. The 70s were out insane. About everything. I know. That's right. Um, during the years, stop wrinkling your paper. Sorry. You're not Rachel Maddow. <laughs> well, I try to be. You look like her. During the years he spent incarcerated, Alcala self-published a book called You, the Jury, in which he proclaimed his innocence in the Samso case. He hotly contested the DNA swabs done on prisoners periodically for the police department's evidence bank. Alcala also brought two lawsuits against the California penal system, one what? for a slip and fall accident, what? and another for the prison's refusal to provide him with a low-fat menu. <laughs> uh, well... Alcala announced I'm with him on that one. to much surprise that he would be his own lawyer in his third trial. Oh, God. Even Did though now, it? 31 years after Samso's murder, investigators also had concrete evidence against him on four different murders from decades past, thanks to the prison's DNA swabs. The prosecution was able to combine these new murder charges again, along with Robin Samso in the 2010 trial. During the 2010 trial, the jurors were in for a bizarre ride. Rodney Alcala, acting as his own attorney, asked himself questions, referring to himself as Mr. Alcala in a deep voice. Huh. So he would change his voice, when he, and then he would answer them. It's insane. So he'd be like, um, Mr. Alcala, where were you on the night? Um, I was uh, at the store. So yeah, he would like I, change I his voice that. up. Yeah, I pictured that as you were saying. That's insane. That's an insane person. The peculiar question and answer session continued for five hours. He told the jury that he was at Knott's Berry Farm at the time of Samso's murder. Played F- five hours they sat there and listened to that mm-hmm. insanity? Played dumb on the other charges and used an Arlo Guthrie song as part of his closing argument. <laughs> <laughs> Arlo Guthrie shares the same birthday as me. So Alcala simply stated he didn't remember killing the other women. The only other witness for the defense, psychologist Richard Rappaport, offered the explanation that Alcala's memory lapse could be equated to his borderline personality disorder. The jury, not surprisingly, found Alcala guilty of the four DNA back charges and also found him guilty of killing Samso. Finally, in 2010? Yep. 
A surprise witness at his sentencing was Tali Shapiro, the girl that Alcala had raped and beaten within an inch of her life about 40 years before. <sighs> Shapiro was there to witness as justice for Robin Sampso, Jill Barcombe, Georgia Wickstead, Charlotte Lamb, and Jill Parento had finally been achieved. The court handed Alcala the death penalty again for the third time. Good. Since that trial, investigators have continued to link, link the dating game killer to many other cold case murders, including two to which he pled guilty in New York in 2013. Well, you're kidding. As They're of, still finding more? Yep. As of 2018, Rodney Alcala has not been executed. He sits on death row in Corcoran State Prison, California, planning an appeal for his third death sentence. Oh, and we that is go. the story of the dating game Let's killer. Let's go interview him. I don't think so. Yes. Let's go interview him for our podcast. Honey, he's in California. Well, it's just a quick plane ride. Let's go. No, I don't think that's a good idea. All right. What's next? Oh, well, that was good. That was a good story you and like interesting. Story? I never knew the dating game killer. I bet that would. Is there a lot of documentaries about that? Yeah, I th I'd say. Yeah. Because um, that would make a good Netflix Mm -hmm. true crime story i would i would expect yeah especially because there's so many like new ones that they're oh, yeah. coming well, up with yeah and especially with him still being alive and that craziness at his trial like you can't believe that he didn't get uh convicted or sent to death well and some of them um yeah no i don't remember what i was gonna say you're gonna just tell me how great looking i am probably yeah i think that's a lot what of people a lot of ladies say that all right well and then we're gonna we're we left off at the beginning of november that's right and we got a new number one song on November 3rd. What the hell is this? This song was released in the UK in early 1979. was bolstered by a music video that was well received by critics. The clip featured Scott as a DJ singing into a microphone from behind an exaggerated turntable setup, at times flanked by two female models who sang and danced in a robotic, robotic manner. What is this? Doesn't this sound like 80s? Yes. This is 79. Were, this is like ushering us into the 80s. Yeah. You remember Pop Music? Uh-uh. By M? I do not. That's the name of the song. Pop Music, M-U-Z-I-K, by M. It would be number one on the Billboard's charts from November 3rd, 1979 to November 9th. Uh, the video also featured Bridget Novick, Scott's partner at the time, who provided the backup vocals for the track. I have never heard this song, I have to say. I'd, it's pretty I'd, shitty. I left out Scott's name. Oh, you remember well. pop music, this song? You don't? You knew it? Yeah. I remember. I think this was in the 80s, though. Oh. This song was initially recorded in R&B and funk styles before a friend of Scott suggested using synthesizers. He describes the genesis of pop music like this. I was looking to make a fusion of various styles which somehow would summarize the last 25 years of pop music. It was a deliberate point I was trying to make. Whereas rock and roll had created a generation gap, disco was bringing people together on an enormous scale. That's why I really wanted to make a simple, bland statement, which was, all we're thinking about, basically, is pop music. All right. But to me, this is like totally different than everything that's been on. Like this, yes. welcome to the '80s. It's kind of like ushering us into the '80s. It almost sounds like Talking Heads-ish. Yeah, I mean, it sounds bit. like the Buggles. It sounds like yeah. all the '80s stuff. Yeah, it sure does. Um, so I was really surprised. That was like to me that maybe that's like the first super popular '80s song. Yeah, that kind of brings us into the '80s. And then Sunday, November fourth, nineteen seventy-nine, fifty-two Americans are taken hostage in Tehran, Tehran, oh, Iran. Yep. For 444 days. That's right. The four Iran hostage crisis. Yeah. Four days later, ABC's Nightline premiered, centering on the crisis. The Iran hostage crisis was a diplomatic diplomatic standoff between Iran and the United States of America. 52 American diplomats and citizens were held hostage for 444 days from November 4th, 1979, all the way to January 20th, 1981. Jeez. So we talked about that in our last season. Yep. Uh it was after a group of Iranian college students belonging to the Muslim student followers of the Imam's line who supported the Iranian revolution took over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. It stands as the longest hostage crisis in recorded history. Did you wow. know that? I didn't. I, can you imagine being held hostage for that long? No, I can't imagine being held hostage at all. No, that's true. I guess, um, you, got, I guess you got a point there. Yep. Um, 
here's a little bit more about it, but we kind of touch on it more in the 80s, I think, too. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Saturday, November 10th, 1979, pop music is overtaken. Everybody said, okay, we're not ready for the 80s yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so a new number one song by the Eagles. Yes, this is a good one. Written by Don Henley, Glenn Fry, Bob Seger, and J.D. Souther, and recorded by the Eagles. Heartache Tonight. Yep, this is a great song. Mm-hmm. I think this is the song I always think of when I hear the Eagles. Even more really? Than, Even more than like more than Hotel California? California. Yeah. The track was included on their album The Long Run and released as a single in 1979. It reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 in November of that year and was certified gold by the Recording Industry Association of America, representing one million copies sold. It was the Eagles' final chart-topping song on the Hot 100. It was? Yep. It was the last one? Last number one, yep. Oh, wow. It received a 1979 Grammy Award for Best Rock Performance by a duo or group with vocal. The song originated from an electric jam session between Glenn Fry and J.D. Souther, mm-hmm. who would visit Fry's home in L.A. whenever he was in town. Uh, Fry and Souther wrote the first verse while listening to Sam Cooke songs. In the heat of jamming, Fry called Bob Seger on the phone and sang him the verse. Mm-hmm. Seger then blurted out the chorus. According to Fry... J.D., Don, and I finished this, that song up. No heavy lyrics. The song is more of a romp, and that's what it's intended to be. All right. Yeah, did you know Bob Seger wrote that no, chorus? No, I didn't. How crazy is that? Yeah. Let's learn something new every day. Yep. And then, while this stays number one, mm-hmm. on Thursday, November 15th, there was a Bee Gees special on TV. Was there? Yeah, a Bee Gees 90-minute television special. Uh, broadcast on NBC. Mm-hmm. The program featured footage from the Bee Gees' July 10th, 1979 concert at Oakland Coliseum, captured by a film crew that accompanied them during their Spirits Having Flown tour. It also included footage from an appearance with Willie Nelson and Glenn Campbell, interviews by David Frost with the Bee Gees and their parents, and a behind-the-scenes look at recording the tour planning with Robert Stigwood, uh, recording and tour planning with Robert Stigwood and the band's crew. All right. And then on Friday, November 16th, 1979, the ha- the Hatfield and McCoys, the actual families, yeah. faced off what? on Family Feud. What? They had the actual Did families. Did they really? Yeah. Yep. That's nuts. It's nuts. You never thought that happened. Well, I didn't know that they still were a thing. Like, yeah, they're descendants. I, yeah, and they still hated each other's guts. Did they really? Yeah, they punched each other. Did you see it at all? No. I wonder if they. you could tell they hated each other. No, I don't think they really hate each other anymore. Maybe they did. I wonder what that was all about. I um, never never knew. Yeah, you know, it's old Civil War era type thing, I think, is when it started. That long ago? Isn't that when it was? I don't know. I, I always just think of, like, old hillbillies. Like, weren't they just old hillbillies? Yeah, probably old families. It was like the... Was it like a Romeo, Romeo and Juliet type deal? Romeo and Juliet was based on the Hatfields and McCoy. No, it was not. That was... Written in like the 1600s or something. Well, maybe it wasn't. I don't. Hatfield and McCoy's. Maybe Hatfield's McCoy's. Do you know anybody named McCoy or Hatfield? Ken McCoy. Oh, we should ask Ken McCoy. If he's a McCoy. Ken Ken McCoy directed me in a play. Uh, Ken McCoy, if you're listening. (laughs) You shout out. Let us know if you still hate the Hatfields. And on Saturday, November 17th. 1979, mm-hmm. we got a new number one song on the Billboard charts by the Commodores. Is this Lady or? This is the last number one before Lionel Richie went solo. And that's all I wrote about that song. <laughs> that's it? Is it Lady? No. no. Oh yeah, little baby Lionel Richie. It's um, God, what's the song called? Truly? Nope. Shoot. Jesus, so overwrought. <laughs> Lionel Richie's a lover. Lionel Richie sucks. Don't you ever say Lionel Richie sucks? I say it all the time. I know. You've said a lot on this podcast. This is a half Pubes podcast, half Lionel Richie hate podcast. 
Come on, now you can see why Lionel Richie went solo. Like, he just stands out. I don't know about that. This is before... This isn't called Truly? Nope. This is before Hello came to him. Well, will you tell me the name of the song? Still. It's called Still. It's called Still? Yeah. I'm waiting for when he says it. Lionel Richie had a mustache. That's true. And this is... A mustache podcast sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. What's he going to say still? I don't know, but I'm going to fall asleep waiting for it. This, don't you feel like you're on an this elevator? This is a cure for insomnia, this on, song. On an elevator at a dentist appointment? Yes. I don't know if he says still. Still? Nope. <laughs> nope. There it is. Oh, he did say there still. It is. Boom. I accept your apology. Okay. Anyway, on November 24th, mm-hmm. 1979, oh, we got another number one song. Nothing happened between those two number ones, this one and the next one. Okay. This one is a duet with Barbara. Oh, yes. You know who it is? It's uh, it's Donna Summer and Barbara Streisand. <laughs> you are correct. Enough is enough. Nope. Oh, it's not? It's called No More Tears. Oh, enough no. is enough in oh. parentheses. Well, I was pretty much right. You were close. I like this one. Uh, the song was recorded for Streisand's Wet album and also as a new track for Summer's compilation double album entitled On the Radio. Yes. Greatest Hits Volumes 1 and 2. Um, the full-length version was found on Streisand's album, while a longer 11-minute-plus version oh my God. was featured on Summer's album. Like, I'm sorry, we really, don't need 11 minutes of we this. We don't need 11 minutes of it, that's for I mean, sure. Maybe you love this, but 11 minutes of this crap? Sorry. <laughs> I really don't like Barbara Streisand, and I am now vindicated after what she did this week. Yeah, that's true. Her quote, just look it up. She has a quote basically justifying all of Michael Jackson's child molestation, saying it's fine, and that the kids liked it. Oh my God, that's awful! Yeah, and then he. I gotta look that up because I want to see what exactly. She said, "Michael's needs are Michael's needs, and they those guys are fine. They didn't didn't suffer at all." So Uh, she's not denying it happened. I don't know. She's saying it's fine. It's it's what he needed. Oh my God! That's terrible. Uh, Donna Summer and Barbara Streisand never performed this song together live. Really? Yep. I wonder why. Well, probably some stupid thing. Probably Uh, Barbara Streisand was probably like, "I can't." From what I understand, from what. Our friend Don McAllister, friend of the show, Don McAllister, said yeah. about Barbara, she would not. She doesn't. She only plays like two cities because she doesn't stoop herself to the level of being around any other people. She has to only go in New York and Jeez. Los Angeles, and and she won't meet people because she's too good for them and everything. She has so her dog clones for God's sakes. Yeah, and and he says rightfully so. S- Summer, and, oh, this is kind of funky. Yeah, Summer and Streisand. Um, oh. Uh, Although they didn't perform this live together, uh, Donna Summer did sing the song in concert with other female performers, including Tina Arena and her sister Mary Gaines Bernard. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Streisand included the song as part of her Barbara Live concert tour, where she discussed Summer's recent passing and how she wished Donna were alive to sing the song with her now. Well, too late, bitch. You You should have sang it whether she was alive. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. I can't go on. Yeah, that's a good one. So you love it? I I like it. I don't say I love it. You love it. Okay. I think it's funny, kind of. It is funny. I never knew that existed. Yeah. But it sounds familiar, kind of, now when it gets fast. Yeah. Wednesday, November 28, 1979. Between 1977 and 1979, New Zealand offered scenic Antarctic flights. Did you know that? Scenic Antarctic flights. Antarctic flights. New Zealand. You could go to New Zealand and get Antarctic flights. Why would you want to go to Antarctica? They're scenic. That's probably beautiful. Beautiful glaciers and things. But they stopped when one plane crashed into an Antarctic volcano. Whoa. Killing all 257 people on the flight. The wreckage still remains at the crash site. You don't. You don't think of Antarctica as having volcanoes. Yeah, you don't because you think of those as hot. Yep. This is the Mount Erebus disaster. 
So they never went and got any of no, the so bodies. No, so if you went there, they'd all still be. I guess it's just too frozen. It's like there's probably a plane full of Captain Americas because you know that's what happened with Captain America. Oh, he was it frozen is. in ice for a bunch of years from World War Two, and they brought him back out in the could be twenty tens, and he. Well, this was seventy nine though, so they wouldn't look like nineteen forties hot. They would look like seventies. Big stoners. mustaches yeah, and big mustaches and like belt buckles. And no stuff. trim, like pubes not trimmed. That's at all. right. Why are you bringing that up again? Because that's the seventies. Seventies, it was no pube trimming. <laughs> and then Sunday, December second, nineteen seventy nine. Listen to this one. You know who Elvita Adams is? No. Or maybe this is a famous thing. I just didn't know it. No. Elvita Adams jumped she tried to commit suicide okay from the 86th floor of the empire state building okay okay when she jumped she was blown back onto the 85th floor by a gust of wind what she must have been a little person <laughs> yeah she was small her only injury was a broken hip whoa yes so she jumped and then the wind blew her back, blew her on back in- onto the, the next floor down <laughs> like she tried what? To, she got the courage to kill herself and the wind blew her back on and from from, I found this from allthatsinteresting.com. Yeah. After losing her job, the 29-year-old Bronx woman was reportedly living off $100 welfare checks. Mm-hmm. Unable to pay the rent, her landlord was threatening to evict her and her 10-year-old son. So in a deep depression and not knowing what to do, she found herself on top of the Empire State Building. The winds were blowing somewhere between 23 and 38 miles per hour, so not super windy. Yeah. Um, reportedly, security guard Frank Clark heard her moaning and reached out of the floor's window to pull her into safety. She was then taken to Bellevue. So she was like on the ledge? Yeah. She fell wow. on the ledge, yeah. Uh, it was a two and a half foot ledge. Whoa, that's not very big. No. Holy shit. She was then taken to Bellevue Hospital in severe pain, the result of either a broken hip or a pelvis. After being treated, she was placed under psychiatric watch while a hospital spokesman said she was in satisfactory condition. Mm-hmm. She then went on to have the next number one song on the no, Billboard charts. she did not. No, she didn't. Yeah, I don't know what happened to her. I should have. Yeah. Looked up, like, where are she now? And then on Monday, I wonder if she regretted it. Like, I wonder if she... Probably. Like, I've always heard that, that they say that that people that attempt suicide regret it. Like, if they survive it, they say yeah. that they regretted it. Yeah, and it was after always, they, like, a condition that they were just in. Yeah. yeah. They always, like, are... Yeah. They, they don't, like, later kill themselves or anything. Right. Else. They don't try, They don't try again. They're, like... Yeah. They came to... Uh, Monday, December 3rd, 1979, 11 people who uh, 11 people were crushed to death outside of Cincinnati's Riverfront Stadium prior to a concert by The Who. What? The concert was a sellout with 18,348 tickets sold. The majority of these were unassigned general admission tickets that were first come, first served. So 14,770 GA tickets. So just Whoa. That's a lot. A few hours before the show, a sizable crowd had already gathered outside the front of the arena. Around 7,000 people were there by 7 p.m. Entry to the arena was through a series of individual doors all along the front of the arena, as well as a few doors at each side. Mm-hmm. The crowd focused at each of the doors. The doors were not open at the scheduled time, causing the crowd to become increasingly agitated and impatient. During this period, the Who undertook a late sound check. Some members of the crowd heard this and mistakenly believed that the concert was already starting. Mm. Some people in the back of the crowd began pushing towards the front, but this rush soon dissipated as the crowd realized that no entry doors had been opened and the concert had not, in fact, begun yet. Oh, wow. Yep. People originally told through a radio station that GA ticket holders would be admitted at 3 p.m. and therefore a sizable crowd formed by 5. So they still hadn't let them in by 5? No, it didn't. I was saying it didn't open till seven. Like, geez, and they thought it was going to open at three. Yeah, that's why. That's kind of why it was like all this miscommunication. And sometimes that happens with bands. Like, yeah, as a venue, you don't know when the band's going to show up. They say they'll show up a certain time, but if they don't, there's nothing you can do. You yeah. just have to wait for them. Yeah. And sometimes they show up and they're like, "We're who we are. We're the who." Yeah. We don't give a fuck. Right. We were supposed to open two hours ago. We don't give a fuck. We're doing a sound check. Yeah. What are you talking about, the who? You can't. Yeah. There's people out there that are waiting. We're the fucking who. We don't care. You know what I mean? It's like... Pete Townsend was busy looking at child porn, probably. Yeah, he probably was. And Roger Daltrey was uh, Eminence fronting. What? Eminence front. It's a put on. What are you talking about? You don't know Eminence front? No. The song? No. Eminence front. No. The who? I don't know that song. It's the greatest song. I don't think greatest song. You say greatest song. I don't, I'm not sure. I, I kind of veto that. Um, okay. Uh, anyway, 
there was some uh, miscommunication. Whether like some people said they were the Who was doing their sound check. Others have said they played the Who's Quadrophenia movie in lieu of an opening act. Either way, the crowd assumed that the Who were on earlier than scheduled, and then they started pushing towards and uh, crushing people. Wow. Many people got trampled. Some suffered more serious injuries. Eleven people were unable to escape the dense crowd pushing toward them and died by asphyxiation. Yikes. 26 other people reported injuries, and one guy got his pubes stuck no, in, buddy, in his no. in the bathroom later on, but that had nothing to do with it. Yeah. The concert went on as planned, with the band members not told of the tragedy until after their performance. Wow. How about that? The following night, a lengthy segment on the tragedy aired on the CBS Evening News with Walter motherfucking Cronkite examining violence at rock concerts. Guitarist Pete Townsend put down a child porn for a second and was interviewed by <laughs> CBS News correspondent Martha Teichner. Mm-hmm. Teichner? Teichner? Martha Teich- Nailed it. Teich- Martha Teichner. Nailed it. <laughs> Martha Teichner. <laughs> Comparing crowd reactions at concerts to football and boxing matches, calling them high-energy events. The aftermath. In Providence, Rhode Island, Mayor Vincent A. Mm-hmm. Vincent A. Chancy. 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 C-I-A-N-C-I. Chancy. Chancy. Chow. Chancy. Yeah, something like Probably. that. Vincent A. Chancy. Canceled a scheduled performance of The Who at the city civic center that same month. This was despite the fact that the Providence venue had assigned seating. 33 years later, the band returned to Providence and honored tickets from the 1979 show. Really? That's crazy. Yeah, that is. The families of the victims. Did those people never get their money back at the time? He canceled I guess it not. and they just they're probably pissed. Old yeah. people probably hated the who. The families of the victims sued the band, concert promoter, electric factory concerts, and the city of Cincinnati. The suits were settled in nineteen eighty three, awarding each of the families of the deceased approximately hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's not that much. Yeah, it's not much. The city of Cincinnati also imposed a ban on unassigned seating on December twenty seventh, nineteen seventy nine, with minor exceptions for the next twenty five years. Yeah, I guess you would. Eleven weeks after the concert took place, WKRP in Cincinnati aired a special episode. Oh, boy. Showing some of the show's characters attending the concert, learning afterwards of the deaths, deaths and their reaction to having helped promote it on the radio station. Very special episode Very of special WKRP. episode of WKRP in Cincinnati. They probably had like a somber singing of it. Um Okay, that's anyway. In two thousand four, Cincinnati permanently repealed its longstanding ban on assignment seating uh, for Bruce Springsteen for a Bruce Springsteen concert, and twenty five people died. And then, yeah, twenty five <laughs> people. No, they didn't. I guess. And then Saturday, December eighth, nineteen seventy nine, Star Trek: The Motion Picture came out. Mm-hmm. Yes. Remember that? Yeah, I didn't see it, but I remember that seventy nine. Yep. Uh, directed by Robert Wise, written by Gene Roddenberry and Harold Livingston, starring William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly. Um, Orson Welles narrated trailers for the film, mm-hmm. believed to be because director Robert Wise was the editor on Welles' masterpiece Citizen Kane, and this was Welles' way of returning the favor. Oh. James Doohan also devised the Vulcan words heard during the Colonar sequence. Mm-hmm. The scenes were originally shot in English, and when it was decided to change the dialogue to Vulcan, Duhan wrote lines that fit the existing lip movements. Some of the subtitles were rearranged to make this less obvious. Oh. How about that? So it was gibberish, but it was like it had to match their lips. Yeah. Okay. I guess, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the Klingon words spoken by Klingon captain, the Klingon captain were actually invented by James Duhan, mm-hmm. who played Commander Scott. Linguist Mark Okrand later devised grammar and syntax rules for the language along with more vocabulary words in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. And he wrote a Klingon dictionary. <laughs> God. Yeah, there's, there's people that like know, full on know Klingon. Klingon? Yeah, and can speak it. Isn't that crazy? Get a, not, crazy get a life. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, um, people who really like Star Trek, they don't, uh, they don't ever get laid at all. No, I, I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't really care anymore about Star Trek. Do you? You want to hear any more? No, bunch I don't. Of stuff I'm not a big Trekkie. Yeah, I don't see the appeal. 
it's so boring. I really yeah, try it's to. Boring. I really try to get into it because it sounds cool. Like they go on different planets all the time, have different crazy adventures, and come up with different creatures. But I always fall asleep immediately when yeah. they start talking. <laughs> like it's just it's wherever boring. I am, I could be in. A, I could be standing up and I just fall asleep and fall over. Yeah. Every time Star Trek's on, I don't know why. Uh, and then Saturday, December eighth, nineteen seventy nine, we got another number one song on the motherfucking Billboard charts. See if you know this one. This is by a band called Sticks. Oh yeah. It was a lead single from the band's nineteen seventy nine triple platinum album Cornerstone. The song was their first and only U.S. number one single. Oh, yes. It also went to number nine on the adult contemporary Is this chart. Babe? Yes. Yeah. Written by Dennis DeYoung as a birthday present for his wife, Suzanne. Mm-hmm. The finished track was recorded as a demo with just DeYoung and Sticks members John Panazzo and Chuck Panazzo mm-hmm. playing on the track. Panazzo. With DeYoung singing all the harmonies himself. Being that he wrote this for mm-hmm. his wife, Suzanne, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I feel like that's a story we've talked about plenty of times on our podcast where different people were married and they had special things together. So I just looked up her and, okay, when did they get divorced? Yeah. What happened now? They are still happily married. Oh, sweet. Yeah. And the song was very popular in the Philippines. To see me through. This one's funny. Babe. Yep, babe. And while we were playing the song, a dingleberry fell off of our dog. Ew. A small dingleberry fell off of Floyd. Gross. (laughs) I swear. You know what a dingleberry is? We live in a cesspool. (laughs) We've decided to fill it with this. Yeah. As you listen to Babe, listen to us describe the stinkiness of our household. Yep. Pieces of fecal matter falling off of animals yep. at any given time. That's right. That it's true. Then it ruins it. Look, he's slobbering on that. Um, this research well, he's paper. an old, he's a geriatric he's old, dog. We have a 14-year-old dog and a 10-year-old dog. All right. Anyway, babe. Yep. Okay. And right after Babe became the number one song in the Billboard charts. Mm-hmm. The greatest movie in American history uh, was released on December 14th, 1979. We already had Star Wars. No, the greatest. The greatest? I thought you thought Star Wars was the greatest. I like Star Wars, but The Jerk. Oh, the, oh I should have known. The Jerk, an idiotic an idiotic man struggles to make it through life on his own in St. Louis. This is the day is how <laughs> they describe it. Directed by Carl <laughs> Reiner, written by Steve Martin, Carl Gottlieb. Stars Steve Martin, Bernadette Peters, and Caitlin Adams. I love The Jerk. It's a good one. Yeah, it's my favorite. Uh, Stanley Kubrick was a big admirer of this film. He would often recite lines from the film to cast and crew on his films. Really? And he once invited Steve Martin over so they could play chess. Oh. Bill Murray filmed a cameo that was deleted for The Jerk. Oh, bummer. I, I wonder if you can find that anywhere because that, I love yeah. Bill Murray. Yeah, that's I wonder great. what he played. Um. Uh, on Saturday, December 15, 1979, on Saturday Night Live, Bill Murray jokingly reviewed The Jerk, saying, I was in the movie, but cut out of it. That doesn't influence my opinion. The movie is a dog. There's something mm-hmm. missing. I don't know who it is. I can't say. <laughs> um, according to his book, Born Standing Up, Steve Martin's favorite line in the movie is ad-libbed. When his character is hitchhiking, a man in a truck stops and asks, St. Louis? To which Martin replies, no, Navin Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of little stupid lines like yeah. that. Great. Um Steve Martin and co-star Bernadette Peters were in a personal relationship during production. Oh, were they really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's great. She's so pretty. She's beautiful. She's the best thing ever. Mm -hmm. And uh, Steve Martin's favorite scene involves M. Emmett Walsh shooting the cans at the gas station. Yes. That one's funny. That's funny. And he the, hates these cans. He hates these cans. Suck my toe, milk-faced bastard. <laughs> I love M.M. Walsh. Uh, the part where Naven licks Marie's face during their first date yes. was completely improvised. Oh, God. Can and you so imagine So her that? reaction was genuine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. What else do I have here? Uh, 
because of the gas shortage. How about mm-hmm. this? Steve Martin and Carl Reiner carpooled to the set every day. Reiner recalled every day we came up with at least one or two new jokes on the way to work. Oh, fun. Bullshit in the car. Well, that's a good use of time. Yeah. Uh, a sandwich shop in Oregon named their jerk chicken sandwich, the Navin R. Johnson. <laughs> uh, in the beginning of the movie, Navin's at the dinner table with his family, and he bursts into tears. Remember, yep. and then yes. Tosh makes him a tab, yep, and a, a, a sandwich wrapped in cellophane, like he likes it. Uh, but he, when he did that, he didn't tell the actors, the, or the director did intentionally did not tell the other actors who played the the younger siblings about the scene. Mm-hmm. So the astonished expression on their faces is genuine, since they didn't know he was going to cry. Oh, that cool. Yeah. Um, Yep, that's cool. So the, the idea for the film came from a stand-up routine of Steve Martin's uh, from the album Let's Get Small, which he claimed to have been a born a poor black child. <laughs> uh, <laughs> born a poor black child. Yep. And, so funny. Yeah, so many things about this movie. It's yeah. just the best. And he doesn't realize that he's not, those aren't his real parents. Like, they have to tell him. Yeah. <laughs> you mean I'm going to stay this color? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay. Um, the name of the dog was Shithead. Yes. Okay. I think that's... Is that everything? There's so many things about it, but yeah. nothing really super interesting. I just copied everything because I love it so much. Mm-hmm. And then on Wednesday, December 19th, 1979, the top grossing movie came out that year, which is not The Jerk. It was Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, Ted, I've never seen this. Ted Kramer's wife leaves him, allowing for a lost bond to be re- rediscovered between Ted and his son, Billy. But a heated custody battle ensues over the divorced couple's son, deepening the wounds left by separation. Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep star. So I remember being a kid, and I never really saw it then, but mm-hmm. there, there did a lot on Mad Magazine, did a lot of oh, they did. parodies of it. I didn't really quite get it. But uh, it looks sad, like it, it would is, be a sad it, movie. Yeah, it is. So. It, it is real sad, and it's kind of it's really a it's really a uh, like it focuses on such an unpleasant thing. That yeah, they're messy divorce. It's it's really a uh, it's real different in that it's like a um, a commentary sort of on the women's role in that. Like women are just expected to be the keep mm-hmm. the kids all the time. Yeah, and this one was different because the mom left. Yeah, and I remember just seeing commercials and things of like that and for me it was heartbreaking because as a young a little boy yeah um i was imagined if my parents got divorced and tried to imagine being with my dad like i didn't know yeah my, like i wasn't close with my dad at all and like, my mom was like my life my rock you know like, yeah and so i my heart went out for that kid every time i saw commercials of that it's like oh god that'd be so rough um yeah it's just like why would you want to sit for two hours sit up through a movie like that for two hours and i don't know yeah um Okay. The strength of the performances of the two leads can be at least partly attributed to what was going on in their private lives at the time. Dustin Hoffman was in the midst of a messy divorce, while Meryl Streep was still recovering from the death of her lover, John Cazale. Oh, I didn't know you that, know that, that happened. Is? No. Uh, mm, that's dumb. Let's see. I wonder how he died. Or why he died. She probably murdered him. Yeah. Uh, Dustin Hoffman planned the moment when he throws his wine glass against the wall during the restaurant scene with Meryl Streep. The only person he warned in advance, though, was the cameraman to make sure that he got the shot. Streep's shock reaction was real, but she stayed in character long enough for writer and director Robert Benton to yell cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the documentary on the DVD, she recalls yelling at Hoffman as soon as the shot was over for scaring her so badly. Would you want somebody to do that if you were acting in a scene with them, like do stuff and not tell you they're going to do it so you get a genuine reaction? Yeah. Or would you be passed? You would be okay with it? Yeah, because yeah. it's a real It's a real reaction, and, and yeah. Um, I mean, un- unless it was something like slap me in the face. Yeah, you got to piss you off. But, but, but then that again, would still be real, too. Then again, Cause it's, you, oh, you motherfucker. it's, it's real. really hard to not anticipate a slap. Like I've had that happen before where I was going to get a slap in the face and – it's hard not to flinch or kind of like brace yourself yeah. a little bit. Yeah, you yeah. Know? you're right. You would automatically. Yeah. Um, Meryl Streep wrote her own courtroom speech. Oh. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. Um, I haven't seen the movie, so. Yeah, I don't remember that either, but. Uh, <sighs> Anything else? Oh, here we go, yeah. Meryl Streep requested changes to her character. She felt the story was relying on the audience to understand 
why Joanna left without lifting Joanna, without letting Joanna express it for herself. Mm. It was her belief that the character was written in both the screenplay and the book. Uh, it was believed that the character, as written in both the screenplay and the book, was too one-dimensional, and an obvious villain for Ted and Billy to react to and change their lives accordingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, shit. There was a lot of tension between Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep. Hoffman was hearing lots of advanced publicity about newcomer Streep and how she was mastering the role, and Hoffman felt he was being upstaged. So this was one of her first roles? I like guess, ma- yeah, I think roles. so. And when Streep wanted to change around the dialogue in the restaurant meeting scene, Hoffman became furious. As Hoffman recalled, I hated her guts. Yes, I hated her guts, but I respected her. He accepted that Streep wasn't arguing for what's best for her character, but what was best for the movie. So later, I guess he let it go. But I did read a lot about how it was like... It was a groundbreaking film, and that the, they depict the the woman leaving in a divorce, like not yeah. taking the kids in the seventies. That was a big deal. Um, and and then on Saturday, December twenty second, nineteen seventy nine, mm-hmm. we have the last number one song of the seventies. Yes, and this leads us into oh boy, our next season, yes. the eighties. And we, I think we covered this. Yeah, we covered it quite a bit, so I didn't put anything now. Because if you want to know more about this, go to whatever episode whatever is our first 1980 episode. It's probably, it would have been episode 11, right? Because we did 10 episodes in the first Yeah, one. that's right. Go to episode 11 if you want to know about this. And probably the first thing we talk about. Right away we talk about this. this and the video. So Remember funny. the video? Yes. The guy with the ridiculous blue blockers. And yeah. Jacket. And then on Thursday, December 20th, oh, you have something on Christmas Day, don't you? Well, yes, I do. I have some toys. Because all I have is Knott's Landing <laughs> premiered on December 27th. Oh, yeah. Let's not end it on that. You don't want to end on Knott's Landing? No. Did you know it was a spinoff of Dallas? No. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was. Well, uh, what characters been spun off? On Knott's Landing? Yeah. It's a spinoff of Dallas. It was set to a fictitious coastal suburb of L.A. and initially centered on the lives of four married couples living in a cul-de-sac. Sea View Circle. By the time of its conclusion, the storylines had included rape, murder, kidnapping, assassinations, <laughs> drug smuggling, and corporate intrigue and Jeez. criminal investigations. Of course. It was the longest running primetime drama on U.S. television I after never watched Smoke it. and Bonanza. I Wonder, never watched Knott's Landing. Why didn't I stop the Pina Colada song? Because <laughs> it's awesome to listen to <laughs> in the background. Everyone loves it. Yes. Okay, and Christmas for 1979, we will finally end the 70s, and this will end our third season. Yes. Although, we're thinking about doing a special episode, a special bonus episode about the death of Elvis. Because we missed it. Because we realized we didn't uh, even talk about it. Somehow we missed it on all of our research. So we might just do a quick little bonus episode. We could do that, or we could, when we cover Elvis in the 60s, talk talk about it, too. We could do it that way, too. So the Atari 400 home computer system debuted in 1979. Yes, this was uh, one of the earliest home computer systems available to the general public. It, w- it included console, basic language cartridge, TV switch box to plug into your TV, and AC adapter to include all the other bits to play games, including joysticks, etc., make your own basic games. Hmm. Um, cartridges, including Breakout, for example, cost $50 each, which is a $250 in today's money. Are you kidding me? It was 50 yep. bucks back then? I thought it was way cheaper than that. That sucks. The Artari did not have its own monitor, so you connected it into your TV. Yep. Um, then the next thing is beanbag chairs were real big. Speaking of beanbag chairs, what are you sitting in right a now? A beanbag chair. What is our dog Stella laying in? Yes, another beanbag chair. We got so a lot of beanbag They chairs. came in every shape and color, some designed especially for kids. Speaking of that, beanbag chairs are the only chairs we can afford uh, <laughs> because you, the listener, have not donated to American Timelines. That's true. So go to Patreon. Yes. Click on the Patreon link. I think... Where I set it up right. You can give us money. If not, just send us a check. <laughs> I don't think so. DM us and we'll just for you know, just all we're not asking for a lot, just five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars. Something like that. The Starship Enterprise. Oh, so it was a toy? Yeah. Star Trek was extremely popular in nineteen seventy nine as the first of the movies was released that extremely year. Extremely popular for adults. 
Star Adult Trek nerds. also had built up a following from the TV series Star Trek. Yeah. Which ran from 1966 to 69 and Star Trek the Animated Series from 73 to 74. And that's boring as hell, too. I tried to even watch that. And I just fell, oh, really? I you couldn't asleep. even do that? Yeah. The Farrah Fawcett Glamour Center. The popular Charlie's Angel TV series, which ran from 1976 to 1981. What does her glamour center entail? It is one of those dress-up heads. Oh, God, those things are creepy. But that looks just like Farrah Fawcett. Yes, it does. So, yep, it was. she was Jill Monroe. Um, Farrah Fawcett Glamour Center allowed girls to change the model's hair color and style, add bobby pins, put makeup on it, all that fun stuff. Handheld electronic games were very popular. Yeah, little football and baseball games. Yes, they used smaller integrated circuits becoming available. Appeared when we look at them today, they seem pretty poor value, but back then they were something of a miracle. Yep, I loved them. And the Star, the Star Wars. Millennium Falcon. The Millennium Falcon came out, and we have an avid listener named Brandon Wilhelm Mm -hmm. who has a picture of him getting it for Christmas that year. So, uh, Brandon Wilhelm, go ahead and tag us on Instagram. I don't think he has Instagram. Brandon Wilhelm, go ahead and take off your shirt. If you're listening to this on the subway in Chicago, Mm -hmm. take your shirt off, pull up the picture on your phone, and show it to everyone on the train and tell them you're listening to a podcast that references it. Oh, Strawberry Shortcake came out. Oh, she smelled great. Yes. She first appeared as a character from an American greeting card company. Oh, she did? Yeah. She came from greeting cards. Kenner was the uh, company. Yeah. They they eventually gave her a lineup of friends like Purple Pie Man and Apple Dumplin. Huh. But that's where she that's started. That's where it came from. That's yeah, crazy. Strawberry Shortcake. And she was big in the 80s. So. so that means, you know... I'm not so embarrassed for liking He-Man, where that was just like a, a toy based off of a... What was that based off of? No, I think the show was based off of a toy. That's where it was like they made a toy. Was it a, a cereal first? Or no, it? they made a toy, and then they said, let's Remember make a show that? to sell the toy. Remember when I thought Mr. T was, or A-Team was a cereal first? Yeah, like somebody based a show off of a cereal. <laughs> Although they probably I, did. You know, I would watch, all day long, I would watch... Uh, a show with the Honeybee and the Lucky Charms guy as, See? Bu- as buddy cops. See? All day I would watch Like it. a real bloody show. Yeah, and they kill. Like a lot of, they, lot of sex the hunt, crimes. Like, like the Cocoa Puff bird yep. is like gone nuts and killed somebody. And they got he's like on crack and yeah. whatever he's else. Like committing sex the, crimes. Yeah, he and the Tricks Rabbit are, are on a spree mm-hmm. murdering everyone oh, yeah. for Tricks and Cocoa Puffs. That's right. And the Lucky, the Lucky Burkhan and the Honey Bee have to like catch them. And they, there's a lot of rapes and murders and stuff. That sounds like we could pitch that to somebody. Yeah, and the dig them smacks guys walking around. Yep, see? Smacking them, digging them. Tony the Tiger's a sex worker. All right. I think Chuck Berry just got walked in. Oh, God, Chuck Berry came in again. We don't want to jump the shark. He's like, hey, man, I'm still alive in the 70s. That's right, and he's looking at the ba- in he's the bathroom. He's looking at everyone's bathroom. Take us out, Matt Truman. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. Bye, Matt Truman. It's all now. Buy him now, idiot. of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.